And please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A bit of a lengthy reading, but I think necessary to understand the context of this text. We continue our series on the Christian family and continue our subseries on marriage in particular. And our topic tonight will be on marital unity. Marital unity and the need for husband and wife to grow closer to one another. And uh, I am still working out where the next sermon may go, but it is likely the next one will deal with preparation for marriage uh, or, and singleness together, or perhaps we might consider those in two sermons, but that's to get an idea of where we're going after this. That is where we will go, God willing, of course. All right, well then with that, please turn your attention again to the reading of God's holy word. These are God's words and not man's. Now, concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. Yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose there, uh, therefore that this is good for the present distress. I say 
that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, shall such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may uh, attend upon the Lord without distraction. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then, he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to doctrines that are despised by the world. And so we pray that the preacher would preach faithful to the mind of God and not to the mind of the world or our flesh or the devil. So, Father, we pray that you would give the Holy Ghost to your preacher, that he would preach the words of life faithfully to the end that Christ would be glorified in the marriages of the congregation that are and that will be. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in the preached word. So pour out your spirit, for without your spirit, we cannot give glory to God in the reception of the word of God. And so, Father, that marriages here would be a picture of the gospel itself. We pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. In our society, marriages are being utterly decimated. About half of marriages end in divorce. And among committed Protestants, that number, while lower, is still shockingly high, 38% to 40% of marriages among committed Protestants who regularly go to church. Those are stunning numbers, beloved, absolutely stunning And what's the injunction for us who are married, right? When we look on these things, we think, well, wow, that could never happen to me. No, what the Bible says is when we observe such things, we are to take heed lest we fall, right? We're not to be so prideful and uh, proud to think, well, that could never happen to me in my marriage. 
And what we find is that it is plain to see that the Lord's institution of marriage of two becoming one, companions for the duration of their life, is being viciously and violently assaulted by a culture of divorce. So much so that today in all 50 states we have the concept of no-fault divorce. You can just get divorced at a whim. And that's incredible to think of it in that way. I think actually the last state that was a holdover was New York, strangely enough. And um, yeah, it's mind-boggling. But that said, couples, you need to be wise at the end of the day. The world, your flesh, and the devil, these three great enemies of the soul, seek to drive you apart. That is actually what is raging out in the world right now, and even in your own flesh. There's a simple thought exercise in this, right? What has God said? God has said, I hate divorce. Hasn't he said that? So what would the world, the flesh, and the devil love? They would love divorce, and your divorce in particular, which is where we have to get to. Even your own flesh, right, as we think on that enemy that is so near to us, that indwells us, even your own flesh couples will seek to drive you away from marital unity. If you've been married more than a nanosecond, you know that, don't you? That often you are aggravated with the one who is supposed to be closest to you. And sinful thoughts that you might not even think about, others in the church you will have, about the one who is meant to be closest, nearest, and dearest to you. Your own flesh will hurdle you towards marital schism. Think of what Jesus said your flesh is prone to. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Matthew 19.8 You see, it is the hardness of our own heart that will drive us away from one and another. And he spoke to the men then for societal reasons and for the laws of the commonwealth. But now it is just as easy, maybe easier, for women to put away their, their husbands. And so he says the same word to both husbands and wives. Your heart is naturally hard against your spouse. And our confession is very helpful in sort of... Um, Uh, vividly putting the doctrine in this way, that the corruption of man be such as is apt, apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. That is the bent of our heart. Our corrupt flesh will find arguments that husband and wife would separate from one another. But rather than speak on divorce, In this sermon, I want to speak of its remedy, which is unity. Because if you work towards marital unity, right, then you won't have the problem of looming divorce. And what the hope of the gospel and the scriptures is this, that in Christ, two fallen but redeemed sinners can actually grow very close to one another incredibly close with the same spirit that testifies that they are the children of God. And that's the hope that Christ gives to every marriage, no matter the condition of our marriage, that both husband and wife may move towards one another if they would mortify their self and they would cling to Christ and depend on him and love the other person in Christ. A marriage can be utterly healed, even if there are breaches. And so our theme is simple, which is marital unity, marital unity. And there are three areas of union we will cover tonight. First is union in love, 
Second, union in reconciliation. And third, union in intimacy. And uh, for the parents, I'm not going to speak of anything perverse, and I will just use scripture terms there. And so I trust you will be uh, comfortable with that with your young ones. First, in love. A couple of things to consider as we begin. First, as I said, this is not a sermon on divorce. We can consider that perhaps another time. I'm not considering, in other words, what to do when the marriage bond can be severed. There are two occasions for that, if you don't know, that could cause, could, doesn't necessitate, but are allowances for the marriage bond to be severed and broken. And the first of that is adultery, Matthew 19, verse 8. And second is geographic desertion by an unbeliever, our text, verse 15. And so I'm not going to deal with the difficulties that might come there. That would require a whole sermon in itself. I'm going to deal with the struggles that married couples have outside of those very grievous sins. Now, as we consider our primary text in 1 Corinthians 7, the other part is we'll come to this next week again, Lord willing. We're not expositing it verse by verse, but I want you to consider the overall sense of it, that husband and wife are not to depart from one another. That is crystal clear, right? Consider verses 10 and 11. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. See, here's the commandment of God. Don't put away each other. Don't depart from one another. Be reconciled one to another. And this is, Paul wants you to absolutely be certain this is the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> he said, don't even think it's the commandment of Paul the Apostle. This is the commandment of the Lord that the husband and wife not depart, but are to be reconciled. And this is the mindset of marriage, friends. A commitment that even when breaches occur, I am committed to moving closer, not farther apart from the other party. That must be a fundamental commitment you make to the Lord in marriage. In every breach, I go towards Christ and towards my husband or wife. And to show you how strongly the Lord views this, not even your spouse's unbelief or renouncing of the faith is cause for divorce if they stay with you. Verses 12 and 13, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. And this is where, of course, we have our doctrine of baptism of children comes out of this in part. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. You're not to even depart if, the un, if one, your spouse denies the faith. That's how serious the marriage bond is. And the reason for this is that we go back to remembering the agent of marriage. That it is God in his wisdom that has brought a man and a woman together. And this is what Jesus says, Matthew 19, 6. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. In other words, when you even make the first motions away from your husband or wife, you're going against the work of God. It doesn't even take divorce. 
right? Even when that separation in your, in your soul comes where you, you are frustrated and you don't want anything to do with your spouse, whose work are you going against? You're going against the work of God. And this is what husband and wife must remember in their marriage, is that their marriage is for the glory of God, for the God who brought us together. What you must say, man and woman, is that my marriage is about serving Jesus. This is not what is often taught, even in the church. My marriage is actually my service to Christ, first and foremost. It's not even about myself. You remember... Several sermons ago, I mentioned how Reverend Alan Cairns ministered to a man who was struggling with loving his wife. And, and he, you know, the man said, I've always heard, right, it's, it's love Christ first and then love my wife. But he was so frustrated still in that. And, and Reverend Cairns, he said it so well. He said, no, it's not first love Christ and second love your wife. It's first love Christ, second love Christ, third love Christ, and so on. You love your wife through Christ. You love your wife for Christ, right? You don't even love them for themselves first and foremost, though you, ha- you must. It's first because I love Jesus, I will do what he says. And he has brought us together. I love my spouse through Christ. It's my reasonable service. It's not even, and this is where even marriage, you must see it as cross-bearing couples. It's about denying myself, bearing my cross, and living for Jesus. Somehow we think that that, that I don't know, actually. Actually, let me pull completely back. I actually am not sure what any Christian anymore thinks that text has to do with themselves. We are so loath to deny ourselves. We are so loath to follow after Christ. But especially in our marriages. It's like, oh, I must be exempt from that. My marriage must all be about my happiness. No, you live for Christ and happiness comes. You live for yourself and misery comes. A true Christian can never be happy. And I have seen this with husbands and wives who have put away their spouse. A true Christian can never be happy when he goes against the Lord's will. Always remember that. The Lord will make you as miserable as Jonah on the boat when you flee your marriage. Until you repent. So I would just say, in whatever situation or station of life you are in, beloved, you are to serve the Lord in it. This goes, this is not a marriage sermon in that. You say, my life is not my own. I was bought with a price. I am Christ's. Look in this text what the apostle said to those who were even bond servants at that time. Uh, Verse 22, for he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. I love that. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You're bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. In the Lord, yes, you are free. You are a free man. You are a free woman. Not as the world would have you be free, but you are free in Christ, free from the penalty of sin and damnation. You are free from the doctrines and commandments of men. You are free to live for Christ because you're bought with a price. Jesus has bought you, and so who do you serve? Who's truly your master? It's Christ himself. So you need to live for Christ in whatever station the Lord has called you to. Verse 24, brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. You're to abide. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Therein abide with God. Right? Even if your marriage is difficult, who are you abiding with ultimately? You're abiding with God. 
You're abiding with God, and that's where we don't we take our focus off the Lord, don't we? And we think that my marriage, when it's difficult, or whatever situation I'm in, I'm all by myself. No, you are not. You are never by yourself, Christian. You are with God, who is never going to leave you nor forsake you. And so whether you're a husband or a wife, or you're single, divorced, or widowed, remember, you practice your religion. We talked about this last week. We practice our religion practically, don't we? By living for the glory of God in whatever station we're in. And a God-glorifying marriage is one way you practice religion. We don't think of it that way. But a God-glorifying marriage, even when it comes at a cost to ourselves, is a way we practice our religion. That's what we heard in Titus chapter 2. The practice of our faith is religion. Well, in marriage then, as we consider this, Uh, need for unity, what you must do is grow in the chiefest of the Lord's graces. The Lord says there are three chief graces for his people. Boys and girls, maybe you remember what they are. What are they? And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, or love. And what's the greatest of these? Charity, meaning love. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. The need of our day husbands and wives, I have often reflected, is to deeply understand the nature of love. Love takes work. It takes spiritual work. It takes emotional work. It takes even physical work. What is the doctrine of the world in contrast to that? And this is where we are patterned after, right? You can fall into love. You can fall out of love. That's not love at all. That has more something to do with lust, but not love. I won't mince words To hear words like you can fall into and out of love is actually satanic. It's satanic. It's not love at all. This is not what love is. That's an earthly, uh, earthy, not a heavenly love. The world's doctrine of love, think of it, could never account for the cross of Jesus Christ. It never could. Where the most perfect heavenly being comes down to take on flesh and die for filthy sinners because they were sinners that he loved. But in the world's conception, it would be like, why would you love these people? They're disgusting. They spit at you. They nail you to a cross. There's nothing to love in them. But marriage is a picture of this gospel, isn't it? As we consider it in Ephesians 5. Love for the most unlovely. So I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with you. We could turn there. Just so you can see the tenor of love the chiefest of graces, no mere transient feeling, but a deep, challenging commitment that requires death of self to love, to love as love incarnate as Jesus did. And it requires the grace of God and can never be fulfilled without seeking him. Now, the entirety of chapter 13 is exquisite. We often read it at uh, weddings, but um, I was just thinking on this. How often do the couples keep it in their heart after they say, I do? You need to regularly meditate on it, especially when things are difficult in marriage. I'm only going to read verses 4 through 7. Please read the entirety of the chapter sometime today if you can. Verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. 
I don't think there's ever been a poem of love in the world that has been penned that can compare to these verses, friends. Do you see the tenor of love? Is it giddy? Is it transient? No, it endures. It it suffers long. It is patient. It expresses kindness. Kindness expressed to who? Just to those who are kind to us? No. Kindness even to the unkind. Right? Isn't that the kind of the tenor of the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you love those who love you, how different are you from the pagans? If you are kind to those who are kind to you, how different are you? Are you really possessed of the new birth? It doesn't envy. There's no competition in love. It doesn't puff itself up to assert itself. It doesn't behave in an unseemly manner. It does not, here it is, seek its own. To love is not about taking is it? It's about giving. It's not about receiving. It's about giving and blessing. That's what Jesus did. What does he have to take from us? Absolutely nothing. And you think of Jesus as well. To love is to not be easily provoked. To love is to not think evil on the one it loves. And how we bless the Lord Jesus Christ that he doesn't think evil of us. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And what's the tenor of love in verse 7? It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. That is sacrificial, isn't it? That is something that takes work. And that's what it means to exercise love, beloved. It is never selfish and self-centered. It is other-centered. It is serving. It is not taking. And even when the other sins, right? What is the frame of the one sinned against? Its frame is not to retaliate, to not be provoked, but to pity and be kind, to win the other and not demolish the other, to be compassionate and tender, to be ready to forgive offenses, to pray for them. This is the Lord's own frame to those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is love, beloved. Put away what you have learned about love from Disney and from your schooling. What you find about love in the world has nothing to do with biblical love. It's rubbish. It's a satanic counterfeit, really. It's not the love of God. What you see, really, when you look at 1 Corinthians 13 is you find Jesus Christ incarnated. God is love. And here he is. In the flesh, this is the tenor of Jesus Christ. And in a culture like ours, we need to be inoculated. We need to have this text really mortify and prevent our heart from going the way of the world. Our culture eschews any kind of pain and hard work when it comes to love. Think about it. This culture, we seek a pill for any discomfort, right? This chapter is extremely countercultural. And this Society we are in will tell you this lie, right? If you are unhappy with your spouse, just leave them. Because you deserve to be loved in a certain way, right? But that's actually a species of hatred and not of love. Would you want the Lord to give up on you with your myriad of sins? The blessing of the gospel that marriage pictures is what? That the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that wonderful? So many take vows, right? Not to forsake, uh, or actually to forsake all others for this one, right? The blessing of the gospel 
And that is what I cling to in my deepest sins, isn't it? When I go to the Lord in repentance is that he will never leave me. He will never cast me away. Those who come to him, I will in no wise cast out. This is love. So ask yourself, would I want Jesus to love me a sinner the way I love my spouse? Constantly, when you are aggravated, you need to ask the question, do I want Jesus to love me the way I am tempted now to love or not love my spouse? I have spat in his face. I have crucified the Lord of glory, yet he laid down his life for me. And so I think all married couples ought to routinely meditate on 1 Corinthians 13 because, as I have said, the world's idea of love has infiltrated our souls and the people who profit the best are the divorce attorneys. We need to be tuned to God's ways. And remember, boys and girls, what's the chief end of man or woman? Is it your own happiness? Does the catechism say that the chief end of man is my own happiness? No, it is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do it to the glory of God. That means your marriage as well. So if you understand love, you will know your duty then. This will flow naturally to be constantly reconciled to your spouse. And this is a duty when exercised will constantly strengthen your marriage bond. And let's consider that in our next heading in reconciliation. Now, I think what is helpful is that what we are covering in this sermon Uh, except for the third heading, uh, governs all relationships. It really does. At least, uh, as I said, until it comes to a matter of marital intimacy. But what I want to remind you of in marriage is that you are unlikely to ever live so close to another sinner as you will in the marriage. You come to my house, right? You You spend a few hours with me and then you leave. You don't have to live with me, right? But in marriage, what do we have? We have two sinners who live very close to each other. And what both parties have to understand and recognize, and this is why, you know, uh, I think the, the, the uh, marriage, uh, rather divorce statistics are very skewed because a person who gets divorced once is likely to divorce again. Never learning the lesson that every person I'm going to marry is a sinner. And as soon as you give up once on one person, it's going to be very easy. Uh, we talked about a conscience being seared this morning. This is why I think, you know, when you have the person who's been married two, three, four, five times, they've never learned the lesson the first time, right? Which is that all are sinners and come short of the glory of God. And they've never learned the lesson that they themselves are a sinner. So both parties are to remember, neither are perfected in this life. Both will sin. We both are sinners. And what is the duty of sinners who sin against each other? Reconciliation, forgiveness, and that is our duty before God. This is a biblical commandment, Ephesians 4.32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And what's the equation there? Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. See, it always comes back to the gospel, couples. You are not to escalate conflicts. This is our tendency in the flesh, is to want to, right, as the saying goes, right, you, you He brings a knife, you bring a gun, right? As the gang sayings go. But we are not to escalate that way. But that's what marriage is often like. This person says something provocative. I escalate. Oh, well, don't you know how you are, right? I mean, that's immediately where we go. But what what is the beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. The children of God seek peace with all men especially their spouse, 
even in the face of sinful anger. Remembering what? Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. But where does a soft response begin? It doesn't begin in the tongue. It actually begins in the heart, with a heart that is disposed to being tender, merciful, and forgiving. That kind of heart is unnatural, first of all. You don't possess it by nature. You possess it by grace alone. When you seek to be conformed to Christ, uh, your heavenly husband and his heart, right? You want the heart of Christ and your union with Christ as you pray to Christ. Give me your heart, Lord. Make me tender-hearted. Make me kind. Make me forgiven, even as God, for your sake, Lord, has forgiven me. Now, I want to warn you again about our culture because as we consider biblical categories of forgiveness, sin, and grace, our therapy culture is completely contrary to all of this. Okay? Uh, I've been greatly alarmed, especially talking to a lot of ministers recently, that Christians in the church are no longer speaking in biblical categories, but worldly ones. Right? Hopeless categories. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard this. My spouse is a narcissist. Right? It's very common to hear. Very common to hear today. You know why that is? Because each and every one of you have traits of a narcissist. You're all self-centered. I am too. And it's easy to diagnose somebody in that way. Because everybody has a bit more of a care for themselves than for others. You can make the glove fit anyone. But what I want you, and anybody but Jesus that is, if you really despise your spouse, in other words, you are going to find worldly labels for them so you can put them away. What is under these labels, like narcissist? It is the idea that my spouse is, and here's the word, irredeemable. Irredeemable. They are this, and they will never be anything but this. Now, let me ask you where in the Bible that idea comes from. Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. Have you ever thought on how satanic, again, that is? To give up hope for another. That kind of thinking must be put away. What did we hear about charity? It believes all things, and it thinks no evil. And the rise of psychology and secular therapists has coincided with the removal of sin as a category. I want you to understand how terrible that is. There's a facade there, right? They say, well, we can't call it sin because that's unkind, right? And so what we will do is we will call the drunkard an alcoholic, which, by the way, you ought never do. That's a secular category, not a biblical one. A man or woman is a drunkard, not an alcoholic. An alcoholic is someone with a disease. A drunkard is someone who has sin. Now, the difference between sin and a disease is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And grace is the cure to sin. Which means that when you call a man a drunkard, he is not a hopeless man, but is a man who can seek after the grace of God. You call a man an alcoholic and he is told he will never be anything but an alcoholic because he has a disease that cannot be cured. And so when you label a person, especially your spouse, with worldly categories, that is to remove hope. But when you label their sin as sin, why do we praise God for that? Because there is a cure, there is a balm in Gilead for it. The blood of Jesus Christ which can cleanse us from all sins and turn the heart of the most hardened sinner to himself. 
there's a hope of reconciliation. And so to remove the category of sin, this is the sort of satanic uh, mischief under it, is to remove its cure, which is the grace of God. And to remove the idea that a man or a woman can repent to God in Christ and be healed and a relationship can be reconciled. And so don't be fooled by the psychotherapists. They peddle no cures at all. Instead, what are they? They're peddlers of themselves. They're like many auto mechanics. Maybe you've had an auto mechanic, right? You take your car in the shop and then it's got something else wrong with it. This is what the psychotherapist is. They never cure anyone. They make you dependent on themselves and whatever they're selling you. No man or woman, have you ever heard of a man or woman healed by the modern therapist? No, they're kept in bondage. Listen to Sigmund Freud. He said, much will be gained if we succeed in transforming your hysterical misery into common unhappiness. There's the hope. Right? A cheery thought. His aim is to take you from misery to common unhappiness. And that is why people... Christians especially who run away from biblical categories end up being nothing but miserable. But what's the Lord's promise in Christ? What's the hope of the gospel for our misery? He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings, and he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Psalm 40. Right? And so what you have to do is you must remember the grace of God, beloved, and maintain hope for yourself and your spouse. If you do that, you can rest in the Lord, even in difficulty with great joy. You must not give up on your spouse. You must not give up on, uh, on your marriage. You must seek the Lord. And you can give up on your marriage, right, without having to divorce. A sense of hopelessness can come about and invade it, even if you resolve to stay together. You must work instead on your marriage at the sign of the first breach, and not be resigned to, I guess we will just be nothing more than glorified roommates. Reconciliation and forgiveness is where this takes place. If your wife or your husband sins against you, the commandment of God is the same. Go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister. You need to, if you need to, deliver even a godly rebuke with humility and not sinful anger. You know, the most piercing rebukes, right, from the Lord, you think of them, are delivered in love. What? Could you not watch with me one hour, right? Have you thought about this in some of the godly rebukes? And on your part, husband or wife, be willing to always receive a godly rebuke without retaliation, without saying, who do you think you are? Especially husbands might have that frame with their wife, but it goes both ways. Who do you think you are to talk that way about me saying I'm sinning? You need to consider your ways, and it's not just in the marriage bond, but in every way when a brother or sister comes to you and says you have offended me in the Lord, and uh, you, you think of it and you say, okay, have I sinned? And I need to consider it and not snap back. And if you have sinned, ask the other party for forgiveness, right? Now, this is in some ways Christianity 101. It's really hard even in the church, but it's especially hard in marriage. For whatever reason, our flesh gets in our way and we are so prideful in marriage. You need to ask for forgiveness and you need to give it freely when asked for. You need to forgive fully with no resentment. You know, pride or stinking pride will prevent us from asking our spouse, will you forgive me? One of the questions we routinely ask ministers who are being, or men who are examined for the ministry is this. When was the last time you asked someone for forgiveness? Do you understand how, how important a question that is? 
Even a minister is a sinner. And if he cannot recognize it, he has no place in the pulpit. So when did you last ask your spouse to forgive you? You're like me. You've offended your spouse. When was the last time? You see, if we're not in the habit of forgiving and asking for it, then we are going to have a marriage that has all kinds of breaches which may be in danger of rupturing at any moment. And what I would also say is ask for forgiveness preemptively. Don't wait for the other party to rebuke you. Um, Ask the Lord even daily, how have I sinned against my husband or wife? And then go and ask them for forgiveness. What What does the Lord's Prayer say? You are to forgive others as you have been forgiven. Forgive our debts, right? As our debts have been forgiven. Husband and wife are to remember this. Their marriage is a picture of the gospel. And so they must desire to put away any debts between the two of them. That should be their heart's frame. The heart naturally wants to resent. The heart naturally wants to retaliate. You need to replace those sinful proclivities with tenderness and forgiveness. Very unnatural. Requires the grace of God. And you must ask for it. And here's the other part of reconciliation. When you forgive, it is forgiven. You are not to dredge up the past when a thing is forgiven. How does the Lord forgive you? For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember what? For a little while, I will remember no more. That's forgiveness. That's the gospel, isn't it? Mercy for our unrighteousness. And the children of God are stamped with his divine character. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's meant to be the inclination of our heart. The new birth is to make us merciful people, to give us a tender heart of mercy and forgiveness, not holding things over others, but instead forgiving freely as we have been forgiven. And in this, husband and wife, Your heart can turn in this direction sinfully. You must never see yourselves as each other's enemies. Even when the other person seems to be clearly wrong according to the word, we show love, not bitterness, not sinful anger, and so forth. How does God treat his children who sin? For as the heaven is high above the earth, So great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And here's the key that we often want for ourselves, but will not give to others. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Mercy, pity, forgiveness. The child of God, the Christian, right, has their father's character or ought to. They need to see their spouse in the same term. When they, terms. When they sin, I pity them. I pity them because sin is harmful to them. Sin is evil that they have committed. But whenever you start to see your spouse as the enemy or competitor or one to be bested, you have turned a deadly corner. When you see your spouse is to be vanquished and not won, Satan is crouching at the door, taking advantage of your sin. Remember this rule from Scripture. And emblazon it in your heart. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth or triumphs against judgment. James 2.13. Yes, we must all follow God's law. But even when your spouse sins, 
What do you remember? Mercy rejoiceth against judgment. This is something that we really need to grab a hold of. Even when we rebuke our spouse, we do it in the spirit of mercy. Also, (laughs) this is helpful for us as well. When we see our spouse sin, we are called to not be hypocrites, right? We are to take the plank out of our own eye. Let's make sure that when our spouse sins, that we're not sinning in a more grievous way. A good habit in marriage is when I am sinned against, is there a fault of mine I need to remove? Now, communication uh, as a couple is vital for you, and I might need to preach this on another day. But uh, let me just say this. You must not be afraid to open up one another to each other about matters that bother you. All right? One of the problems you will face also in your busyness is that you will neglect to speak to each other of important, weighty matters. So many couples, their communication can end up being high and by. But there needs to be room in the marriage to speak of difficulties and difficult things. Men, this is especially on you to create this atmosphere in your home where you invite your wife and even children, we'll talk about children again later in the series, to speak hard things even if they are against you. There has to be an invitation for that. And when your spouse has something to say, both of you cultivate the gift of listening and hearing. Sometimes, right, and I think uh, the men folk are especially guilty of this, we want to answer a matter without hearing the entirety of it. Here is the rule of thumb. Let the other party speak until they have nothing left to say. Proverbs 18.13, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. And when you do speak, remember the rule of Colossians 4.6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. But do cultivate an atmosphere of communication and mercy. A, A warm environment, right? The warmth of Christ. When you have that, when you have that, husband and wife will share their griefs more freely. And they will also seek the Lord in prayer with each other as well. When we understand we live by the grace of God, we will seek the grace of God. Pray as husband and wife in the midst of your communication, seeking forgiveness. And Christ's love and warmth will fill your marriage far warmer than the fireplace will. Far warmer. The other part of conflict and such is that, let me say, do not neglect Matthew 18 when you have a conflict that you cannot resolve in your home. Uh, Speak to other godly counselors. Bring them into it. Uh, Follow the steps of Matthew 18. I don't have time to go into all of this tonight, but it can escalate even to the point of the church, right? To the elders. Please do not give up on each other. Follow the Lord's ways, the Lord's paths in conflict, and the Lord will work mightily in there. All right, I've spoken much about conflict in this heading because offenses do come. And I would say, though, don't focus so much on the offenses either, but also don't neglect the positive side of marriage, which is you are to enjoy one another. So much has happened in marriages where we no longer find ourselves, our spouses, or we don't find our spouse, our chief joy, the side of Christ, right? And what you ought to do is enjoy one another. You ought to spend time with one another, however that looks for your, for your marriage. You remember how Isaac was with Rebekah. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Genesis 26, verse 8. 
The authorized version says sporting, which really means flirting, showing endearment to her. He, he was not beyond showing his wife affection. Here's a patriarch in the Bible showing his wife such close endearment. King Abimelech sees them, right? And he knew instantly that, uh, that Isaac had lied to him about her being his sister because of how endearing the two of them were to each other. So what you need to do is you need to find ways to continue to show affection to each other after marriage and the children. You need to keep your heart warm to one another. You need to think often on your spouse, right? I suspect in the days of courtship, your, your spouse was very close to your heart and your mind, always thinking on them, right? What has happened to that? Where is that gone? Think on the gift that your spouse is very often, how blessed you are, even with their faults, for the Lord to have joined you together. Spend time with one another. You know, I was thinking about smartphones again. This might be a recurring theme in the family series. But um, it was bad enough when television came out, right? Uh, you know, it was the joke that with late night television, the birth rate went down, right? So couples would, at least with a television that was shared, would sit with each other, right? And just zone out, I guess. But then you could have a television in every room. And now the husband is watching his sports or whatever he was interested in. The wife is over there watching whatever she's interested in. Now, though, you can be in the very same room and not even interact with one another. Be completely on these things. You know, it, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling. You know, you can even go out uh, to a restaurant and watch every party at the table. Uh, and a whole family is on their own device. It's like, why are you in here? Just get takeout, right? They will interact with who? Their so-called friends on YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and wherever else, while their husband or wife is sitting right there. And if you or your spouse right, are in the habit of going down the internet rabbit hole, how melting a word it might be if you are cognizant to this and you went to them and said, would you spend some time with me now, love, right? I think that would be a melting word. Well, gone long here, so let me end with our final heading, which is in intimacy. Now, let me just say another cultural thing has happened, but it's not even cultural. You see it in the Bible here, that the intimacy of the marriage bond is often weaponized, it, too, is often self-seeking and not spouse-serving. And so um, it's not selfless the way the Lord would have it be, right? You think about how selfless it is. This is the very means that the Lord uses to create children, such that the union of the marriage bond, and not always, I understand infertility, but often it is the union of the marriage bond that creates others as an expression of love. Isn't that a wonderful thing, right? Such that the love of husband and wife is actually multiplied through the marriage union. Isn't that a remarkable thing? But when we see love as selfish and about taking and not giving, marital benevolence is weaponized, children then, the product of the womb and of love, are now seen as a burden. Abortion rises to murder the products of love in the womb, right? That place of love. Why? Because the marriage bond, or what is ought to only be for marriage, is now a self-seeking thing. And it's not a giving thing. Right? And this is why the world has perverted and satanically twisted love. Now, let me say the pulpit is not the place for all that might be said on this topic. Uh, the Bible is not prudish. 
It speaks frankly on certain matters, these matters, but at the same time, it's not a graphic book, and its language is couched with a sense of propriety, as it ought to be, as the word of God. And I would suggest that couples that need more help in this area come speak to an elder or myself, and maybe we can find resources for you or help you directly. And if you are preparing for marriage, no matter no matter your age, whether you have been married before uh, or you're very young, a frank and open discussion needs to be had with the potential spouse in terms of biblical expectations and such. So keep that in mind. This is not a sermon on marital intimacy, but I want to speak on the matter of unity via intimacy. Verses 2 to 5. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now, I hope you noted a few things here about what the Lord teaches us about the marital intimacy that husband and wife are to share. It is called, and mark these words well, do benevolence. It's an act of love out of tending to the other person. You see that? It is giving and not taking. It's not about our own satisfaction. In other words, it is not for self-gratification, right? Self-gratification is not what the marriage bond is. It's for our spouses. And doesn't, fit, doesn't that fit the very conception of love in the Bible? That it's about the other. Second, the Bible says we owe it to our spouse. It is due benevolence. It is due benevolence. Both husband and wife owe intimacy to the other. Now, you can think on how shocking this is from the societies at the time. Because it says here, even the husband is obligated to the wife, even as the wife is obligated to the husband. That's an incredible thought, especially for societies back then. Third, your body in marriage is not even for yourself. This is especially mind-blowing, right? That the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife, and vice versa, right? And this is that biblical understanding that causes us to die to self and to seek the benevolence of the other party in the marriage. Not to weaponize it, not to use it as leverage in disagreements, not to see our body even as our own, but also belonging to the one who is called our one flesh. But men and women, if you are to enjoy such intimacy, I think you need to deal with the prior two headings, right? To love, to forgive, to be tender-hearted, to be kind, to even sport with one another. Then you will desire, oh, how you will desire the blessings of the marriage union all the more. And there's a warning here that adultery arises if the marriage bed is not warm, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. What will that happen? He will tempt you and you will tend towards adultery. Not just husband, but verse 2 indicates this for both husband and wife. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's what flows into verse 3, our duty to render due benevolence. Think on the tenor of Proverbs 5, 18 through 20. 
Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? You see, if we really were 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 loving our wife or our husband, and we were ravished with their love, which requires us to meditate on them constantly so that we would find them as the apple of our eye, right? we would not go and find strangers to share what is illicit. This was, in Proverbs 5, to deal with the matter of prostitution in those days, right? Why go to a stranger when you have a wife of your own? Why are you not ravished with her love? But let me say today, male and female prostitutes are very close by, very close by. They can even be called up in your pocket. There is no place, let me just be plain, for such deviancy. Absolutely none. You need to put it away. It is grotesque in the sight of God, especially if you are married especially if the Lord has given you a husband or wife to enjoy and to despise that gift, you are to enjoy them. And if there are difficulties in this area, work together to put it away and enjoy each other. And a few reasons are given in the Bible to abstain for a time from the marital union. In our text, verse five says, for the sake of prayer and fasting by consent and for a time, for the duration of the prayer and fasting. There are monthly reasons as well to abstain during an issue of blood, Leviticus 15, 19. Merciful reasons as well if a spouse's body suffers from physical maladies or sicknesses. If you love your spouse, right, it's not about self-gratification and you're thinking on them. The Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. Well, time has gone away for me. And we have had at this point, I believe, 10 sermons on marriage. And it seems like with each sermon, we only really scratch the surface of the topic. What does that tell us, though? I think it should encourage you just how comprehensive the book is, isn't it? Second Timothy 3 tells us that, that it has all that we need for our marriages and every situation in life. So what you need to do is remember that and always turn to the book and not the world. Turn to the Bible for any difficulty you might face in marriage. You don't need the world's experts. All they have done is contributed to a 50% divorce rate. You need the word of God. And for any difficulty you might face in marriage, and even more importantly, to press forward for a stronger marriage, every marriage can be stronger than it is today. So press forward. Don't be satisfied. Do it all, though, for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless us and keep our marriages and our congregation until the next time we meet. Please rise for prayer, if able.